Amen. Thank you, Evan. I appreciate that much. Romans chapter number 8. Romans chapter number 8. And uh, Brother Jim has some extra outlines. We'd love for you to have one. Prayer bulletins, actually. And so if you need one, please get his attention as he makes his way down the front and heads to the back. We want to jump right in. Romans chapter 8. We have grand designs to finish the chapter tonight. We'll see if that holds true, all right? And I'd love to get into chapter number 9 next week. A whole different section in a sense, but very much tied together. But that's enough about that. Let's quickly find, uh, uh, pick up where we left off, right? Verses 31 through 30. Uh, nine before us. Again, give Brother Jim's attention if you need one. I think everybody's set good. And uh, Roman number five is what we've been dealing with. A spirit of promises that we will never fall from the ranks of the safe. So let's put it in context of our normal uh, vernacular, we would say that this is dealing with um, eternal security, the reality of our relationship with Christ as a child of God, uh, as evidenced by the possession of the Holy Spirit, uh, is forever. It is eternal. And as we alluded to, even in that song we just sang, and uh, that was by my request, by the way, that we sang that hymn because I think it's so beautiful and I think it it, it just uh, does so well, dovetails with our uh, message here this evening. I am his and he is mine. Great truth. Hey, uh, the idea here as we've seen, there's several questions that we are confronted with. The first one we saw is this, what is our response then in turn to these truths? And falling right on the heels of that is who or what can be against us. And we looked at several things. Let me just throw these out here for a reminder of those who weren't here with us last week and a reminder for those who were. Uh, Satan's constant temptation to every believer that such a promise that all things are going to work together for your good and God's glory is irreconcilable with reality. That, that's what Satan wanted each of us to be. Remember, we looked at Jacob and where he, he saw and he says, all these things are against me, right? And maybe you had one of those moments this week. And yet the reality is we see in the end game, the bird's eye view, the spiritual view from heaven, everything did work out for Jacob's good, for his family, for all those involved. And so God was good in that way. We also noticed this statement that, uh, or, or that we kind of took away. Here's my responsibility to trust God's plan and purpose and then rest in that promise. I can trust it. It's going to work out according to his plan. We also made this conclusion, a couple of conclusions. We'll look only at the first one. God's plan and purpose will be accomplished and nothing can thwart their success. And that is to be likewise a great comfort that we derive from this passage. We also made this statement. This is not God operating or doling out good things on the basis of the law or merit, but this is Calvary love. As we talk about verse 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? This is Calvary love, Calvary grace that is shown and displayed every day in our lives. And it continues in sanctification, the same grace that was there in salvation. And it's flows from his hand throughout. So we talked about this and we arrived and we understood this meaning of this word, freely give. And it comes from that word that is a derivative of the Greek word that from which we get grace, charis, and it means literally, uh, gratuitously gracious, okay? Uh, listen, it, uh, over and above, abundant, beyond, just, just amazingly gracious our God is who freely gives us all things. And so that then relieves the fears, the trepidations, the, uh, the sometime constant feeling that I've got to take care of this situation, I've got to work it out. I've got to control it and manipulate it so that everything works out for my good and, and the way I want to. Can I tell you, friend, the reality is this. If God is that gracious, then I can step back and let him go to work. 
and I can take care of what he has given me as my responsibility. What was that? Well, we derived it from Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, right? What's my focus now in life? Seeking God's kingdom. His focus is what? He's already said he's going to care for us. We looked at all those passages that he talks about, like the lilies, like the red. God's going to take care of you and I. We know that. He's promised it. So let God do what God does, and let you and I be responsible to do what we ought to do. Seeking first the kingdom of God. Great truth. Now we build on it. Let's add it to another one of these questions. Look at verse 33, if you will, with me. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. A lot of meanings here, a lot of things within this question, and yet we understand what the question is, right? The question is simple. Who can charge us as believers with anything that will disqualify us from God's plan? In other words, we're going to flunk out. We're going to get disqualified and, and uh, we're not going to make it. We're not going to be in God's plan still. Paul is addressing these things because it's crucial. Now think about it. In context, what are the Jews fearful of? Well, Jews are fearful that they can't keep the law long enough to continue to be justified. So Paul's addressing that. Say, listen, listen. It's not the law that justifies. It's Christ that justifies. So he's alleviating some fears, some doubts that would be there. And in fact, if you think about it, he's literally asking this. Who is it that can overrule, or what even, who can overrule the judicial decision that was established in God's courtroom? See, Paul's addressing a natural question that arises in the heart and mind of man. No doubt it's spurred by Satan himself. Here's the doubt. I'm going to do something to disqualify myself. I'm going to fall from the status, the position of being justified. I'm going to falter in my living and my doing. And uh, the thought is this. My my account then is going to be too heavy in the sin and iniquity column. And I'm just going to lose that justification. God's going to turn his back on me he's gonna he's just gonna cast me aside because i'm not living up to to what i need to be can i just share with you this statement and i think it's a great statement to put each thing into perspective as paul's trying to do in this passage you understand this that justification is judicial and legal in nature so when we talk of justification as we studied in the prior passages and, and chapters of Romans, the fact is this, it is dealing with a judicial, a legal viewpoint and standpoint. That's why we described it as the courtroom of God. But you look at forgiveness, uh, forgiveness is uh, family-oriented, familial. Uh, it, it's the reality of being gracious in its nature. It's, not, it's taking it out of the courtroom and putting it in an everyday practical sense. So, so let's think of it. Let's understand and, and grasp what Paul is getting at. Yes, we've been justified, and justification involved what? Well, you are justified based upon, now don't miss it, the pain of the debt. The debt has been paid. It, the standard has been met. Christ did that for us. Now, forgiveness, though involves with the doing away of the debt, a dismissing of the inability and inadequacy to meet the debt. And you say, wait, wait a minute, Pastor, don't those two contradict? No, here's the point. In justification, Jesus Christ went into the courtroom. He paid the debt for you and I. Our debt has been paid. Uh, the blood shed his life given and sacrificial without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins so therefore the shedding of christ's blood we now have remission of sins but let me ask you this then if christ paid the debt who do you and i owe 
Jesus Christ, right? We owe Jesus Christ. Can I ask you this? Can you ever pay back Jesus Christ? No way. You know what Jesus Christ does in salvation? He looks at you and I and he says what? The debt is forgiven. The debt's forgiven. You, you can't ever pay me back, but friend, you don't have to. You don't have to. This is grace extended to you and I. The debt justification, it was paid. So don't ever think for a moment and be careful in our semantics and doctrinal explanation. Listen, don't say the debt was done away with. And so, no, no, no. In justification, Jesus Christ paid the debt. It, it, it was met. It, it was taken care of. But boy, in the forgiveness that Jesus Christ extends to you and I, because he doesn't come to you and I and say, okay, now for the rest of your lives, you're going to pay me back. He doesn't say that. He's forgiven you and I. And my friend, when you understand the clarity of those two truths and how they just mesh together, boy, it's a beautiful understanding of how great a God we serve. What a great Savior we have that did that for you and did that for me. Understand this, judicially, we could not pay the debt, but as Christ could and did, we now owe him. But he's graciously forgiven what we could never pay back. And so that then produced the declaration of justification. It's the declaring of a believing sinner to be righteous. And what Paul is saying in this verse, that never changes. You are justified. So nothing can come up and say, oh, 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 wait a second. Here's another charge against Stephen Henry. Here's another failure. Look at him. No, no, no. No one can charge that because why? You've been declared just. The believing sinner has been declared just. It never changed. The case is closed. I like this. If you're familiar with courtrooms and the judicial system, there is no double, double jeopardy in God's courtroom. You'll never be retried. Listen, you and I were already tried for our sins in a sense, uh, doctrinally, in God's courtroom, and that's where Jesus Christ paid the, the price. We'll talk a little bit more about it in a moment here. But now understand this. Every Christian experiences, uh, or our Christian experience, changes from day to day. What do we mean by that? Well, there is no doubt a daily cleansing that is practical in nature uh, that the forgiveness of sin then comes to play. In other words, it's the forgiveness of sin that is confessed and forsaken. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. So, Justification is the doctrinal legal viewpoint that you and I are forever justified. Remember earlier in the chapter we said, he, he, he looks at us and said, we're already perfected. Well, that's based upon the court decision of God looking at Christ and the payment he made. But here's the reality. I'll tell you, my friend, the fact is every time I sin, I yearn for Christ's forgiveness. That's the practical day-to-day outpouring of that justification. He declared me to be just at salvation. But reality is, you know, there's days where I sin. There's days where I have a wrong thought. I say a wrong word. I cop an attitude, whatever the case may be. Can I to, in those days, I need a daily practical cleansing that comes from the confessing and forsaking of sin. And the Bible says what? He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, understanding how these things work together provides clarity to my Christian walk, to our Christian walk. And understanding that, praise be to God, we've already been declared just. In fact, we put it this way on your outline. Notice the statement. In the courtroom of God, in regard to our salvation, our account is filled with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and empty of our sins. 
See, what a beautiful thought that, that those sins are already taken care of. The righteousness of God has been applied to our account as we have seen. Once we are part of the family of God, nothing can be brought before the judge to disqualify us from his plan. Okay, think about it this way. Maybe um, you can think of it in terms of this. If someone goes to court and the judge gives an order and he passes a judgment, but it's based upon there's a contingency that this person is on parole. Okay, and if he breaks parole, what happens? Well, he goes back before the judge. He may be thrown in prison or something else. Do you understand that Satan wants you and I to live as Christians like we are on parole as Christians? That, oh yeah, Christ has justified you, but boy, did you see how you live today? Did you see the things that went through your mind? (laughs) How can you be a Christian? And he wants you and I to think that every day we got to go stand before the judge once again. My friend, in Jesus Christ, we've already stood before the judge and we've been declared just. There's no returning. Oh, there is a need for daily forgiveness and repenting and forsaking of sin. There's no doubt of that. The Bible speaks to that. But these two teachings, two truths, live together. They go together. And Paul is certainly alluding to that. But here's the, alluding to that. You see, try as he might. For instance, Satan's daily going, oh, listen, hey, that Christian over there, I, I know they're, they're one of your children, but boy, they did this today, and they did that, and they said this. As much as he would try to charge us and accuse us, it amounts to nothing. And that's been his sad existence and experience down through the ages of dealing with the people of God, hasn't it? I mean, the Scriptures tell us this. Okay? Hold your spot here. Turn with me to a book probably we don't visit too often, Zechariah, Zechariah chapter number 3. Okay, And uh, Zechariah chapter number 3, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So find Malachi, go to the left. And uh, if you find Malachi, go to the left a little bit more. If you found Haggai, go to the right. Okay? Zechariah chapter number 3. And what a beautiful passage here. Some visions taking place. But notice the verse 1. Zechariah chapter number 3 in verse 1. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand, notice it, to resist to accuse him, to, to, to throw uh, disdain on him, accusations, a charge against him. Verse 2, And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with the change of raiment. And what a beautiful story, isn't it? Vision and picture that we have before us. We can imagine this, can't we? There's Satan. He's standing there, and all he thinks is that before God in heaven, the angels that are gathered, Jesus Christ, that he's going to make Joshua look intensely bad. Um, he's going to show God that this guy named Joshua, this high priest, this leader of Israel, this guy that you picked, is, uh, he's not a good guy. He, he is unworthy. He is undeserving of what you've done for him, of picking him. Listen, this Joshua was a bad guy. Now, we know that Satan is what? Well, Revelation says he's the accuser of the brethren. We also know on top of that, we know him to be the father of lies. We know he's subtle and deceitful. 
But do you realize that often when Satan goes before God to accuse the brethren, that he doesn't often have to employ those means and methods? In, in other words, you know, sometimes he goes before God and he really doesn't have to lie about you and me. He can look and understand and whatever knowledge God allows him to have. He can see your sins. He can see my sins. He can accuse us in one way or the other. Whether publicly done or whatever the case may be, to the extent that God has allowed him to have some sort of knowledge, the fact is this, he can accuse you and I. He doesn't have to lie. Oh, certainly sometimes, there's no doubt, he lies, he tweaks, he manipulates. We know who Satan is. He's a deceiver. He's self. We get that. But let's be honest. The fact is, sometimes Satan, when he wants to uh, accuse you and I, when he wants to charge us before God, the fact is you and I are unworthy. We are undeserving. We do and say things that aren't fitting for someone who's been justified, who is a child of God. The same was true with Joshua. Did you catch verse 3? I certainly tried to emphasize it. How was Joshua clothed? Filthy garments. Dirty rags. It is a symbolic vision of the reality of how we stand before God. Filthy. I am undeserving. I am unworthy. What does Paul say? Hallelujah. It is God that justifieth. Not the clothes of my own doings. Not my own obedience to the law or whatever. No, no, no. He he is the one that justified. He is the one that declares someone is just in the face of the greatest accusations and charges that Satan or anyone else can levy. Can, can we just put it this way? Can I just say this? Let, let, let's say Brother Dell. W- w- uh, Satan is, is wanting to accuse Brother Dell. Oh, man, he has Brother Dell in his hands. He's ready to go to heaven before God and accuse him before God. Can, I don't know what Brother Dell this week. Let's just say that, uh, I don't know. Let, uh, what's something bad? Just kidding. I, let's say he did something bad this week, okay? And uh, let's say this. I'm just completely making this up let's say brother dale you know something went wrong with farming equipment i'm sure that never happens and uh he got angry and he kicked the side of that that uh, uh what would you be using right now i don't know tractor i don't care let's just call it a tractor he kicks the side. he gets angry maybe he says i don't know bad word again this is completely hypothetical okay so satan's like oh did you hear that boy that dale child's here oh god thinks he's a goody two-shoes wait till i tell him and that, what i find funny is satan thinks he's revealing something to god that God doesn't already know. See, isn't that funny? Yeah. So we see that Satan is limited in some way in his knowledge and understanding too. He is not God. He is not like God. We don't know the extent of his knowledge. We don't understand fully, but we do know this. He is not God. And he thinks he is. He'd like to be, but he isn't. So he goes before God and goes, okay, hey, hey, God, you won't believe this. That Dale Childs, he got mad. He kicked that John Deere. You know John Deere, right? Yeah, okay, good. John, he kicked that John Deere, man. He was angry, and boy, he got, you, he, your child cussed. You know what God says? Okay, but he's justified. Yeah, but, but he, he, he's justified, Satan. He has been declared just. No, he's just. You see how it silences anybody who wants to make a charge? Hey, they're not worthy for heaven. Yeah, you're right. I'm not worthy for heaven. Neither are you. But I've been justified. It's God that justifies, not us. 
And so shame on us when we think we're going to lose that by something we do. Hence, the Jews struggled with it. They thought the moment that you stopped keeping the law and doing those things, you were justified by the law, and if that justified you, then you have to keep it by keeping the law. But praise be to God, the law never justifies. Only Jesus Christ does. His righteousness applied to our account. It is a beautiful picture, isn't it? In fact, verse 4 says it well of this passage, isn't it? Uh, doesn't it, I should say? I, I like, he says this, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. It's not on your account. And I will clothe thee with change of raiment. Let's do away with those sinful, filthy rags. Let's put on you the robe of righteousness. Let's throw that on you. I love that. Man, what a great truth. And I think we ought not to miss within this picture, what does it emphasize? Who's doing all this? God is. It's all of him. I, I will cause your iniquity to pass. I will clothe you. That of righteousness, that raiment. There's no one that can charge us in the face of such justification by the Lord of Lords. Any charge, Satan, or really anyone else, any charge falls to the ground without sticking one little bit. Oh, it may be legitimate. It may be real. It may be warranted. It may be founded upon fact. But in the light of the justification that declared on our behalf that we were just, no one can lay a charge to our account that sticks. Praise be to our God tonight. We are secure in that justification. No one or no thing's going to change the fact that God has justified us. Notice it, and again, these are very much, I, he, he never directly answers these questions till a little bit later. I like that. He, he just throws out some reasoning. He throws out some logic in a moment. We'll see where he answers it directly, okay? But he, he's just giving us little answers to help understand and explain it. Now, notice verse 34, okay? Who is he that condemneth, okay? So condemneth is the next step after laying a charge against someone. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So the question here is, if we'd put it in different terminology or verbiage or wording, who can pronounce condemnation upon us? Who can do it? Let's say that this charge is legit, okay? Uh, for sake of illustration, let's say, yeah, Brother Dale did do that. That John Deere, for once in its eternity, it didn't work, okay? And he got mad. Let's say it's legit. Let's say that it's true, that there, there is sin and iniquity in our lives, that we have done or said the wrong thing, our attitude stinks, our, our spirit's not right, our words are not Christ-like, um, will we be condemned now because of that sin? Many people worry about that. Oh, man. I, I, I've heard Christians make this statement, man. I, yeah, I was a Christian, but boy, I, I went away from God, and I've done so much he can never forgive me. Well, in that statement, they're literally saying, I can't be justified again like you need to be justified again. There's this thought of, I, I, man, my sin just condemns me, and, and boy, I've done so much. And, and we know unbelievers that have said something to that effect, too. We understand that that is a question. So let's revisit the courtroom setting for you and I as believers. There's God. He's sitting upon the judge's seat. He's sitting upon the throne of that courtroom, if we might call it that, as all of life is his courtroom and his jurisdiction. There's nothing 
in life and creation that is outside his jurisdiction. There at the prosecutor's table, there in the courtroom, and uh, there's a, our threefold group of enemies. There's our flesh. Now listen. There's our flesh who loves to condemn us about our sinful and lustful actions and, and thoughts. Who, who condemns us with knowing what my desires, my, my fleshly desires are. It condemns us. Then there's the world. The world loves to condemn us for our hypocrisy and our failure to love God fully in our obedience. The world loves to point out that, that the Bible says, if you love me, keep my commandments, but you're not keeping God's commandments. Uh, they'll love to quote Scripture incorrectly, amen? I, uh, forgive me, I, I find it a, a, appalling. A uh, Democrat presidential candidate last night quoted Scripture to you and I about why we should raise the minimum wage. There's a Bible verse for that. Did you know that? You can look it up later. But I mean, it, literally trying to put a guilt trip on you and I. That's what the world tries to do, don't they? They try to grasp and say, ah, ha, 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 you're a hypocrite. You, you don't. Get, how many times do we have to say it? The church is not for perfect people. The church is for sinners. It is. And yet the world wants to condemn you and I, that we would admit it and we would acknowledge that's a reality. Yes, I don't deserve and, and I am sinful. Add to this, we have Satan who loves to condemn us for falling short of all um, that God is himself. What do you mean by that? Doesn't Satan love to come point out to you and I where the Bible says, be holy even as your Father in heaven is holy? Satan likes to point out to you that we fall woefully short. We're not a good representation at times. As a husband, as a father, as an employee, an employer, as a wife, as a mother. Satan loves to come and say, listen, listen, you call yourself a Christian, follower of Christ, a little imitator? You you call yourself that? Ah, You can't be that. You fall way too short. Doesn't Satan love to condemn us? All three of these, they're sitting at the prosecutor's table, and man, they're just, they're <laughs> drooling, they're excited because they know they have us, in a sense, dead to rights. Then here at our table, the defense table, we sit, and there sits our defense attorney, Jesus Christ. The charges are listed. The prosecution's case is solid. Our actions cannot be not denied, and the fact that they are against the law is as clear as day. It's clear to everybody there in the courtroom. The only outcome appears and seems, the only logical and reasonable outcome seems to be the rightful judgment and condemnation of you, of me, the, the guilty defendant. See, th- th- you have to go there. The, all the facts point to the reality is I am a sinner. And yes, I, if I didn't sin today, I sinned yesterday. Reality is that, that I have still done things, even as being a, after being a Christian, that I could, 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 could be condemned for. So the flesh does that. Uh, the world does that. Satan does that, and some are legitimate. But as that is the case, and that is the seeming only rightful conclusion, our defense attorney rises. And he talks to the judge, yea, as Paul says here, he advocates, he intercedes on our behalf. And he simply points out to the judge of the courtroom, God the Father, that the fine, the judgment, the payment for the offense has been paid. The debt has been atoned for. 
all in his death and resurrection. That's what Paul says here. He's the one that's died. He's the one that rose again. There is nothing for the court now to do. There's no condemnation to be given. No, no judgment to be handed down. And all that is left to do is for the court, uh, is for the judge just to hit his gavel and simply say this. The case is dismissed. You see, friend, there are now no grounds for the defendant to be held accountable. That's what Paul's sharing with us. This is the truth. See, our own flesh wants to condemn you. Satan wants to condemn you. This world wants to condemn you. But there is no chance of any of it happening. Why? Because we are in Christ Jesus. He has already paid it. His righteousness has been applied to our account. He is constantly reminding and and going before God, hey, listen, yes, he did that. Yes, she did that. Yes, they sinned today. Yes, they failed in obedience to you, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him that has sinned. Yes, the accusation is true. The charge is true. But he cannot be condemned. She cannot be condemned because the penalty's already been paid. Christ has paid it. So not only are these charges not sticking that Satan and others bring towards us, but the rightful condemnation that comes from that sin is no longer able to be applied to you and I, our lives. Because what would happen if every time, and there's some that believe us, don't they? Free will, Baptists, others. Every time I sin, I almost got to get saved again. Man, what a miserable living. To think that the moment I sin, hey, some of us would get saved 20 times a day, amen? I mean, honestly, if we really thought that way and we had a bad day where the flesh was winning every victory, man, that would be a terrible day if we thought we lost our justification. If we thought that Jesus Christ is condemning us again. Can I, can I tell you, I'm so thankful that this verse is even alluding to this truth. Do we disappoint God? Certainly. Do we break his heart? Certainly. But that never means that God turns around and condemns you and I. There's no condemnation now. It's a great truth on the hills of there's no charge that can be laid to our account. See, Christ is constantly our advocate. He's interceding on our behalf for the sin we commit to ensure that it, uh, ensuring and reminding that it's under the blood and that no condemnation will fall upon our heads. See, let the prosecution, uh, our flesh and the world and Satan talk and accuse and, and beg for condemnation until they're blue in the face. The reality is this. The simplest and best response to those condemning voices is simply the upraised, pierced hand of our Savior, our advocate, our intercessor. Those pierced hands raised in the courtroom remind all there's now no more condemnation. It's done away with. We are secure in Christ. Theoretically, you could go out tomorrow, you could, get the, you could commit the worst sins that you could think of. And the fact is this, if you were justified, you are justified. You would still go to heaven, but I'll tell you, my friend, you would break the heart of God. And if you're a real Christian, whoever would want to break the heart of God? 
you're truly a Christian, who would ever want to disappoint your Heavenly Father who's done so much for you? Your Savior who sacrificed so much for you. Paul points it out, and later on, Paul even addresses that reality. That if you're born again and you are regenerate, there would be absolutely no desire in you to go out and commit the worst sin you can think of. You're a new creature. Oh yeah, the flesh is there, and certainly there's desires deep there that would try to do things. But we are secure in Christ. It's really a conclusion that Paul hits on much earlier, doesn't he? You remember what verse number 1 said? Back in chapter 8, remember that was like, what, five years ago? Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no to them which are in Christ Jesus. See, he, he, he's come full circle. He really has. He, he said, okay, listen, there's, you walk in the Spirit because you're a believer. Okay, so you're following the Spirit as believers. There's now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The condemnation is removed. Satan may try as he wants. Your flesh may try. In fact, you may wake up tomorrow and you may do something wrong. You may have a wrong thought. You know what sometimes our flesh likes to do? You're not saved. What is this passage about? Eternal security. Why do you think the flesh and the world and Satan wants to condemn you? Because they want you to believe that you're not saved. No, no, no. Jesus Christ died and he rose again. He is your advocate. He is interceding on your behalf. Friend, you are as secure in your salvation today as you were yesterday and as secure as the day that you enter heaven. That's the promise before us in this passage. And yet, time has flown away from us. So verses 35 and following, we'll have to wait till next week. Brother John, you bring those prayer requests. Let me remind you, invite you to pray for Janine James and her treatments for cancer. I ask you also to pray for William Gordon.